Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kulzik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And uh, Noel, this is one of those weeks where it's going to be an hour-long pod, and we're going to have quite a bit to say about uh, the show that we're spotlighting this week, and that's how we're going to get to an hour, because, like, almost everything was off. I mean, there were, granted, the new season of Kim's Convenience dropped on Netflix. Like, there were some other things that, you know, that dropped, but the big stuff that finished and was airing this week are things that we haven't been watching, like Mayor from Easttown and other things like that. So... A lot of the shows we talk about were just off this week, so it, it, it's a light week. It is a light week, um, and I feel bad that we didn't watch any Mirror from Easttown, but also, I just did not care. <laughs> well, I did hear from a uh, not official friend of the pod, because he's not, he never actually been on, Josh Angerman, that it's actually very good and maybe one of Winslet's best performances. So that got it very hyped for me uh, and bumped it up my list. But uh, but no, I just I do not have the headspace for it right now. I yeah. have watched, rewatched all of Drag Race All-Star season three and season four. But the reason I did that and I didn't watch the shows that I'm behind on this week is because I don't need to actually watch it to watch it. I can yeah. do that while I'm doing other work, you know, <laughs> or just generally, you know, being exhausted and pregnant. So um, that's about the bandwidth I had for 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 that this week. Um, and so, then tell everyone what we watched for second segment this week. Then yes, well, Talk. and then the other show that we watched is season one. Well, the entirety of uh, under the Underground Railroad on Amazon Prime, which is a ten episode season, and with the exception of one of the episodes, pretty much every episode is at least seventy minutes. So you know. I I knew it was 10 episodes and I you had mentioned about the one episode being like 20 minutes and I was like, oh, that's great. They take as much time as they need. Okay. So I assumed that meant that in general, an hour, but not like, no, every single episode is longer than an hour, except for the one. Um, so budgeting my time-wise, there was also that element to it. And when you're watching such an intense topic, right, yes. there's only, again, there's only so much bandwidth for other more intense and serious shows like I have been led to believe Mare from Town is. And uh, whereas I'm looking at HBO going, should I be watching Hacks? We should definitely be watching In Treatment though. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, like it's Gene Smart. We should be watching, we should be watching Hacks. People are very excited about it. Um, the one though this year that, or maybe last year that I still haven't seen that I feel actually the, like I would most enjoy that I still haven't seen is Ted Lasso. Um, yeah, but then you need Apple TV. Yeah, there is that. It's bad enough I'm making you get Paramount Plus <laughs> for the next two weeks. I'm very so. excited about it, though. The, the, the stuff that we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. Not to overhype or tease, but it, it's, we're, we're pretty excited. Um, we're also excited about our Underground Railroad conversation, which is going to be happening at the end of the show. Uh, we heard from a couple of listeners this week. Uh, first of all, head over to the website, uh, televerse.org theteleverse.org, to check out Vince's comment about the last episode, because it is, I'm sorry if it's, it's just too long for us to read the whole thing, but it is, he has, he has some thoughts on, uh, it's okay not to be okay. And they were really interesting and his perspective on K dramas and this show in particular. So go, ch- go check it out. If you're curious, um, a lot of really great comments and, uh, thoughts about, uh, that I didn't know about different, um, um, different tropes in K-dramas and some of the approach and what's typical and what's not about the show. So I really appreciated hearing um, hearing from you, Vince, about all that, because certainly, goodness knows, I don't know what is uh, different or, or, you know, typical or not about this about this particular K-drama. We also heard from Nicole, uh, who apparently is an elementary school uh, reading teacher, uh, reading teacher at an elementary school who has been listening to Streaming in Place while she like packs up her room after school, which is how she's like caught up with all of her Lucifer pods in just a couple of weeks. That will do it. Um, thank you for your it. service, Nicole. Um, <laughs> and um, the, the, their last day of school is next Friday, the 11th. So, uh, so yeah, you're nearly there. Not that, you know, not that all the teachers I know have been counting the days or anything, but most of the teachers I know have been counting the days um, to summer break. It's been a long time. 
long year and anyone who's had to teach, I mean, at all, but certainly anything distanced, we, we feel you and uh, we appreciate you. So um, good luck. <laughs> um, but we should get into our week in TV. We have uh, a number of things to talk about, and I'm very curious how, how you're feeling about some of these shows that, you know, we're catching up with different things, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, kind of talking uh, about them with you and seeing where we're at. Uh, so let's take a break. Listen to a little bit of the Lucifer musical, because that's right, guys. Lucifer did their musical, and I'm not going to talk about it a lot because, you know, streaming plays, we're doing Lucifer an episode at a time over there. And also, I haven't watched any of it. And, well, yeah, and Noel hasn't <laughs> seen it yet, so I'm not going to spoil Noel. But you knew there was a musical. That wasn't a that wasn't a spoiler. What? No one told me. <laughs> and, <laughs> so uh, if you thought I wasn't going to use uh, music, uh, like a song from the Lucifer musical, then you don't know me very well, listeners. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that, and we'll be right back with our weekend TV. was Another One Bites the Dust, as performed by the cast of Lucifer. And I chose that one specifically, Noel, because that's the that's the uh, video clip that the uh, the PR people have been pushing for like a year now. So I was like, I won't spoil Noel by telling him they do this song in the musical. So I'll use that one. <laughs> there are other I ones that I think it, I enjoyed you. more. But, you know, I'm not going to argue with Queen. Um, this week in TV, we're going to kick things off with, or Noel's going to kick things off with the season finale of A Black Lady Sketch Show, uh, Way to Ruin the Party, Soya. <laughs> then I'll have just a couple spoiler-free thoughts on Lucifer Season 5B. Um, I've seen the first half of that so far. Then Noel will have some thoughts on Star Wars The Bad Batch, Rampage, and Superman and Lois holding the wrench. Uh, I will give just a few thoughts on Legendary Plastic Fantastic, and we'll round things out with Top Chef Portland and Portlandia. So first up is a Black Lady sketch show, and I, I'm behind on this episode, but I've seen the rest of the season. Um, I've been a little, like, you know, lukewarm on it this season. How was the finale? Did they end, did, did they go out strong this time? I think the finale is a stronger episode than the past couple ones have been. I think there are a number of pretty solid sketches in there. I like the post-date press conference sketch. I liked the... Um, Two women wear the same thing, the same jumper to a party, um, and they kind of deal with that. Um, though, honestly, really, my favorite bit was it was a high school debate sketch about all black topics, and the judge can't decide who which of the teams wins, so they come down to the final, most debated thing. Denzel Washington's best first Academy Award for Best Actor for Training Day was obviously an apology for not giving it to him sooner. What was that role? Oh, that's a good, that's a good topic. That's a very good yeah. topic. It's very good because there's a, the main thrust of the sketch is people can't remember any of Denzel's movies <laughs> <laughs> because he used to do so many. Yeah. Um, like he was constantly working. Um, the punchline to what the judge thinks it should have been is completely wrong, mm -hmm. but it is delightfully wrong. Um, so that was actually probably one of my favorite sketches of the entire season. Um, but overall, I just wasn't completely wowed by anything this season. Um, nothing felt as essential or as pointed as I was kind of hoping. Um, especially given just there was plenty to do based on that opening that we got in the first season and it, in the first episode, I should say. Based on that opening, I thought we were going to get some really kind of strong, topical, but pointed stuff. And I think that they just ended up making a conscious decision not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, which is fine. That's cool. It's just... It feels a little weird. 
Um, and I, I don't think it was exactly what I was looking for. So maybe if I go back and watch this season again at some point, I'll like it more. I will say that everything in the warehouse just doesn't go anywhere and just doesn't work this mm. time around. Um, even the conclusion here just feels kind of flat. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for a third season. They've been renewed for one already. So I'm really eager for one. I'm just hoping this was a little bit of a sophomore slump. Okay. Yeah, it, that's disappointing. The, the sketches you describe are, you know, that they, they sound very promising. I'm excited to watch this episode. But yeah, and maybe it just, I hyped it too much in my brain, you know, after really yeah. enjoying the first season. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It's just, it, I, I was really, um, really impressed with the first season. So I think, it, you know, it can be tricky to follow that up in any genre but especially in comedy so uh because usually like first seasons of comedies are like a little bit of growing pain so if, if a show hits its stride right away it can be hard to maintain um well a show that is definitely maintaining its stride is lucifer season 5b meaning the second half of season five um we're halfway through over at streaming a place or by the time everyone hears this we will be <laughs> um so uh the uh, and and friend of the show Latoya Ferguson has been able to join us for most of those episodes, so that's exciting. That's great. I'm excited about that. Go check out her reviews over at the AV Club, everybody. Um, I will say that uh, Allison is currently three episodes in. Allison thinks that maybe this is her favorite season of the show so far. Okay. And there's been a lot of really great stuff with our new special guest star who was introduced at the end of last season, um, and it gets a lot more content in this 5b so uh and it's about as much as i can say to not spoil things it's been very so far the the arcing and the character motivations and um like the approach the show's taking with the characters uh is really strong and there's been a lot of really terrific performances they're using their ensemble well they're you know there isn't like in some of the other seasons there's been like a storyline where you're like oh god are we pretending that Linda and Mays are like, what? They're fighting about a Menadiel? What's happening? This is, or, or Lieutenant Bland, you know, there's been different, you know, weak points within even a strong season. And so far, knock wood, right? So <laughs> only halfway through. So far, I'm, I'm really pleased with how they've juggled um, their cases of the week, which is basically to ignore them completely. And, uh, and how they've, parsed out the different story beats and um, progressions, I guess, for their their characters, how they're handling some of the fallout from, you know, introducing the person they introduced at the end of last season. I'm going to have to go back and watch, like, the finale of 5A because I don't remember. You don't remember who showed up at the end of 5A? I legitimately cannot remember. My brain is just, like, I can't remember. Okay, that's fine. That is, I'm very excited for you then because then you have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm very glad I've stayed so vague. I'm going to just stop talking now. If you had told me, I would have been like, oh yeah, right. But I legitimately, we've watched so much for streaming in place. We have watched a lot of TV. (laughs) That's very true. Um, But no, I'm I'm legit excited for you though. That means, because then that means that you don't even have a context for some of the stuff. And I'm very excited. So when you eventually do get to it, I look forward to many a text. Uh, but for now, let's move on. Um, so Star Wars had the Bad Batch and Rampage. Um, yes. So are, you know, do, does Omega get something to do? Well, yes, actually. that was, You set me up real nicely. Uh, Omega gets to save the Bad Batch in this episode after they take on their first mercenary job, their first A-team gig, mm-hmm. um, so that they can make some credits and also get their ship repaired. Um, and also get some information about Fennec, who they don't know anything about from the previous episode. So this, in addition to answering the question, can Omega help the Bad Batch without getting into trouble? And the answer is yes. She manages to save them from a bunch of slave traders. Um, and then they can they clean up, basically. But the other really important thing that this answers, and Kate, I know that this was really front and center in your mind as a big Star Wars fan, is... How did Jabba the Hutt get that rancor that almost ate Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi? Yep. Yep. So that gets answered in this episode. Um, essential. Essential question. Needed, yeah. needed an answer. Really important. Really pivotal. Um, but th- yes, a, a baby rancor um, plays an important part in this episode. Um Really, it's fine. I appreciated it. I was just glad that Omega got things to do that weren't getting into trouble 
Um, but they are really slow playing the whole, maybe we'll take more work from this person that we've took this job from. Because it's like, we'll, we'll reach out kind of deal. It's just like, no, just do it. I want to get this show going, please, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is kind of where I am, even if this episode is perfectly fine. It's, again, it's very much in the same gear as the previous episodes have been. Um, and they continue to slow play Wrecker's headaches, which, you know, no one seems like you pointed out last week. No one's very concerned about them at all. Yeah. And it's just weird. It's really weird that no one's, like, drawn those dots there. But... I guess we're waiting for mid-season for that. I guess. I guess. Um, so, yeah, that, that... I don't have anything else to say except for the fact Omega got things to do and we found out how Jabba the Hutt got his rancor. So are are we are we just, like, clairvoyant on that? Or is somebody listening to the show traveling back in time and taking our notes? Definitely taking our notes. That is definitely what is happening. Well, I'm curious uh, what you thought about Superman and Lois. Uh, after, at least, obviously, I haven't seen this week's episode, but the previous one, what did you think, you know, with the whole Steel re- Revelation and then... How did they follow it up this week with holding the wrench? Yeah, um, I think I do think that the steel revelation is good. I'm glad he's not a Luther in any way, shape, or form. So I really like that, and I like this kind of reconceptualization of John Henry Irons um, because within the comic book mythos, when John Henry Irons assumes the mantle of steel after Superman's death um, in yeah. the '90s. He is positioned as the Superman heir that is decent and good, as opposed to the other two who are a teenager <laughs> <laughs> and a murderous vigilante and also a cyborg. Um, mm-hmm. that, but no one knows that just yet. Um, so I like this kind of a pivot, but it also just makes me really, really sad because this is a character who is, his decency has been warped so much by what he's experienced and by his trauma that he's not really recognizable as John Henry Irons anymore. And that really kind of bugs me a lot. Um, So it's really difficult for me to get past that on top of the whole Superman's going to go bad thing. Um, Because again, as I've said for the past eight episodes, when we've discussed this, that's just really boring. Well, and also he's not. (laughs) Yeah. And also he's not. So he's not. Um, So... The combination of those two things make me just kind of blah about a fair bit of this show. Um, Though episode eight kind of puts a pin in that for what seems to be like a little bit. Um, So I think Morgan Edge and his machinations are going to come to the forefront a bit more um, in uh, starting like next week, probably. The thing that's good about holding the wrench, however, is I do really like the lowest stuff. Um, There's some really, really good Lois stuff um, as she grapples with talking to a therapist about her miscarriage that she had a number of years ago um, and how that anxiety ties into something regarding Jonathan that happens in this episode and causes her to just really fly off the handle. And some of it works and some of it doesn't, but the main thing to keep in mind is that the woman who's playing Lois, that's Elizabeth Tulloch, right? Yeah, B- B- Bitsy Tulloch. She's back to Bitsy. Or the, the, the PR people are back to calling her Bitsy Tulloch. Okay. Tulloch um, is really good at everything in this episode. Like, she's just phenomenal. Um, and that kept me paying attention to the episode, really. Um, and her ability and the way that they're writing her connection to everyone, plus her connection to this otherworldly, um, John Henry Irons is also just really, really great. So her, I'm here for the Lois. I'm not here for the Superman right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff with the kids continues to just to be weird and ping pongy. Um, I hate you. Oh, we're brothers. I can never hate you. I hate you. Why are you spying <laughs> on me? No, tell me where I need to go. All this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, that as someone with siblings, that's, it's, and yes, <laughs> it tracks. That, that tracks, but it makes for really repetitive television. So I'm here for the lowest. Everything else can kind of take a little bit of a back burner for me anyway, but I am really still enjoying the the lowest stuff and the performances across the board, even I don't really like the writing are really solid so far. 
So that's kind of where I am with this. But I did like holding, I did like large portions of holding the wrench, even if the actual whole of it didn't grab me. Yeah. Yeah. Betsy Tullock elevating her material um, since the first episode of Grimm. Uh, I remember watching. Uh, that's with, where she's from. Yeah. Okay. Watching her on Grimm and, and just being like, ooh, ooh, she's good. And that character is way better than that character usually is in these kinds of shows. Uh, that's interesting. I will keep watching. Um, yeah. So so I'm I'm glad that she's getting some material to play. Looking forward to catching up with that one. Um, this week on Legendary, we had Plastic Fantastic, which was the first money ball of the season, which basically means that no one's eliminated. And then they have um, the, the the theme was for the group performances was toys. So it was like, you can't say what toy you're doing. So you're going to be doing paper dolls. Yes, not Barbie at all. And you're going to be doing army men. With just the, your house name written in the G.I. Joe font, but pay no attention. And they certainly aren't rainbow bright. It's fair use. Yeah. It's not yeah. fair use, but yes. Um, but there were some really, and then they had to, they had to spotlight floor performance. Um, so the, it was, uh, it was in some interesting performances. Tishi crushed it. The army men uh, routine was ridiculous. And it's actually, it's been an interesting season so far because I, I could be wrong, but I believe in the first six episodes, only two houses have won, like each week. I could be wrong on that. Maybe three have taken Superior House, but it's, you know, they're up to a top five at this point, And it really does just feel like, you know, you could argue that certain other houses should be more contending than they are. Um, there's some, you know, it feels like there's some thumbs on scales um, with some of the the numbers, the, the judging and stuff. But um it really does feel like it's got to come down to Balenciaga and Tishi just based on how, you know, like that nobody else has even, you know, really been able to pull off a superior house or, or uh, been able to, to match them week for week. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but I, I did really enjoy, I enjoy the format. I like this time they didn't reveal the, they had the, the judges score um, like, silently or whatever like they write down their scores so that way they could reveal it at the end of the episode and you know save some suspense i think that that was um a good call because it's not elimination episode so that they could then have you know instead of having the group performances at the beginning and then you know who's gonna win right at the top of the episode they could be you know i thought that there's some structural changes that i think were were good um but they, they also then had two other categories synchronized european runway uh, where they had to be exactly in sync and like that is it's that seems like that should be an easy thing, right? No, because if, if, if any of the two or three people who are together were slightly off or turned slightly differently, they just got chopped. Um, Ooh, brutal, yeah. but yeah, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. So I enjoyed that one quite a bit. And then the other, the final challenge was duck walk, and the poor, the person who won had to duck walk. Three times in a row. And for those who don't know, that is all knees. You're down on the floor, like walking, like, you know, duck walking, but like, you know, like, uh, it's, it's, it's just an insane and in, in these heels too, in like ridiculous heels, um, destroying your legs. <laughs> so first it was group. And then if you, if you made it past the, like the first round, if you got 10, is either 10 or chop. So if any of the judges chop you, you're out. But if all the judges pass you through, then it was a one-on-one. -on -one, and the person who ended up winning was in the initial one-on-one. -on -one. So other people kept coming in who were refreshed, who hadn't, and, and she just had to keep powering through. And uh, props to, uh, to, to, to Tishi on that, because that was an impressive performance. And I, I mean, I don't think I could do uh, like a couple sets of duck walk when I wasn't massively pregnant, let alone, uh, you know, in heels. So it was very impressive. I'm looking forward to back to, I think we're back to regulation play in the next episode. So I'm looking forward to catching up with that, but yeah, it's, I mean, I know it's not your jam, but I, I've really been enjoying legendary this season. I also rewatched in the past like two, three weeks, the first season of legendary and, and enjoyed it just as much as I did the first time. Um, so it's, it's nice. Uh, there's things I like more about this season. There's things I like more about last season, but, um, it, it's been a really reliable source of just like, oh, it's cool what people can do. <laughs> Look at these people. They're also very good. Yay. They're very good at this thing that they do. Um, so really enjoying this season. 
Uh, our last episode is Top Chef Portland and Portlandia. So we had our, you know, necessary cameos based on the title. What did you think of this episode? I think that these ch- the the elimination challenge needs to become a mainstay. I think it's really good um, as a way to force them, force the contestants into a delicate position of having to think about what they're cooking. Oh, for those who didn't watch, the the elimination challenge was you have to write a recipe and you have to cook some, you're cooking a dish, but you have to write it out as a recipe for a portion of six. And then they had other chefs, in this case, the all-stars, follow the recipe and present the same dish at the same time to the judges. But yeah, I I just think that this really kind of pushes the chefs to really kind of think about what they're cooking, which has been, is constantly a theme on the show across its run is you need to think about where you're cooking and why you're cooking it. And doing a recipe should ostensibly make you do that. And it was wild watching people go, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Um, and just cook anyway, but then be like eight pounds of meat for six people. (laughs) (laughs) What? What are you? What? Because I'm Mexican. That's why. Come on. Yeah. Um, so while delightful is also a terrible recipe. Um, so I think that as a challenge, it really represents a way to just make them think about their food in a different way than a you have to cook everything from this orchard. You have to only use these hipster products, all this sort of stuff. I think it just really forces them to think about their food in a different way. Um, and I really like that as a concept. Um, but I also really like that this, as a result of the challenge, it demonstrated that almost none of them think that way. And mm-hmm. it was really interesting watching the people who kind of do a little bit do okay, but then you still got by if you did a really good dish. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that the judging for that just needs to be tweaked a little bit. But I think that on the whole, I really like this challenge. I really like the concept of it. And I really liked how it used the alumni as the testers, the testers, uh, become back in the kitchen. But it also put them into a different kind of perspective as well, having to follow this recipe. And it was delightful watching them go like what does this what does this mean what is this i don't know how to do this i guess i'm gonna sear this in and they don't say to use any oil so it's it breaks every fiber of my being but i guess i'm gonna sear this in not oil oh god yeah exactly so i really really liked this i really like the elimination challenge the hipster thing was complete i don't care but i really like the elimination challenge how did you feel about it oh it was great like, probably my favorite moment of the whole episode was Kristen going to Marie and be like, girl, what? What was happening? What did you do with this? And then the fact that it was delicious and and uh, was one of the best was great. But just, like, the energy of her talking to, like, of those two talking together was absolutely delightful. And it, this also works really well, particularly in this season where we have had this extra time with the all-stars, with the alumni, right? Um, I think it, it would still be successful if they brought them in just for that episode. But because we've been hanging out with them this whole time, their rapport, you know, they've been spending time together and they've got a good rapport. So watching them get back in the kitchen, but with like no pressure because they're not in, you know, they're not cooking for themselves or for charity or whatever. They're just there to like, you know, kill some time basically. It's like, oh, it's part of the contract. So it's, what we're going to do, but like, you know, they can be pretty chill and relaxed and just kind of vibe in the kitchen. Um, it made for a really enjoyable, uh, really enjoyable episode and a good change of pace. Cause you know, one of the things with, I, I would be very happy to see this come back. Absolutely. But something that happens with top chef sometimes, and it also happens, it can happen with drag race. Any of these reality shows that really nails like signature challenges after a while, like that can be a bit of a curse. So like after, it's a it, it's a it's a mark of a really well made and put together reality show if you are able to establish signature challenges, especially pretty quickly, a number of them, because most reality shows don't pull that off. 
But if you're too good at it, then after a while, everybody knows like, well, there's 10 episodes in the season. You've got to do this one. You've got to do this one. And like when you're down to top eight, that's when you have to do Restaurant Wars. Where are you going to not do Restaurant Wars? Come on. Like, where are you not going to do Snatch Game? Um, so having, you know, matching some of those standby, like those, you know, fan favorite challenges can be really um, daunting. So I was I was tickled that they had come up with something new that I felt like belonged in the conversation with some of their other more signature challenges like the relay like the you know the mise en place relay race or the tasting one with the ingredients right or you know some of these other you know challenges that they always do um so yeah i i really enjoyed it and i don't know how many of those dishes i would want to make yeah that's um, the other thing about them but they did um, look like they were yummy a number of them did look delicious um except for that gnocchi which I'm so glad he finally got asked to leave. Yeah. How did he survive three bad pastas? Two bad pastas. Normally one, but yeah. they might give you two. Yeah. Um, they're certainly not three. So, yeah. yeah. So it's just like, how did you get by? But okay, I'll, I'll watch you in Last Chance um, at some mm-hmm. point because my on-demand is not great about getting me my Last Chance Kitchen stuff right now. Oh. So, yeah. Okay, well, I will stay mum about the results on that Thank one. Thank you. Uh, what wins your week in TV? Um, Top Chef, I guess. Um, really, it was Underground Railroad, but um, mm-hmm. Top Chef. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the Underground Railroad, but you know, or Lucifer for me. But but of these, I guess, yeah, I'll give it to Top Chef um, for that elimination challenge. Now we'll take a break, listen to a trailer, and come back to talk about the Underground Railroad. There, I saw a dappled wonder settling across the fields, hovering on angel wings, brandishing a blazing shield. Where do they go? The ones that run away and never return. There is nothing here but suffering. Pain and suffering. It is time to go. That was a trailer for The Underground Railroad, which is a 10-episode series on Amazon Prime. It's based on a novel, um, but it's directed by uh, Barry Jenkins and uh, is one of those, you know, it's one of those shows that if we hadn't done it as a DVD shelf here, I probably would have been like, oh, yeah, I meant to watch that. But I saw such strong critical reviews for it um, when it dropped that I was like, you know, We've got, you know, there's a week where we're trying to decide what to watch. Let's put this in so that I make sure that I watch it. Um, If I had realized, Noel, that there were nine episodes that were 70 plus minutes long about such a, you know, intense topic, and then also one episode that's 20 minutes long, um, I would not have picked it, (laughs) not because I don't want to, but then it's a lot to ask of you (laughs) or our listeners who are watching along to try to watch in just a week or two. Um, I, I'm curious what you thought of the show. I really liked it. I'll just leave it at that. But also, um, how much more would I like this show uh, if 
I was able to watch it once a week, right? This is, does not feel like a show. That's something I saw many critics saying and watching it. Yeah, it feels like it would really have benefited from at least the Hulu release model, you know, or something where people could be t- like really talking about it and and um, and exploring it over the course of several weeks because I feel like the conversation has already moved on and we're not even that late to this one. No, we're just under a month late because uh, this all dropped on May fourteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just we're just under a month late almost by next week. Um, so for me, this is probably the best thing I've watched this year. I think this is phenomenal, um, and I both agree and disagree with the release and the watching thing on this. Two reasons. One, the reason I agree is that this is a show that should have stayed in the discourse, capital T, capital D discourse, for much longer than it has, because I agree, we've just kind of faded out on it. And that's not okay, because this is really great TV. The reason I disagree is that I typically did two to three episodes a day. Um, And... I found that to be a really rewarding experience in part because it allowed me to really immerse myself in the visual and auditory language that Barry Jenkins, along with his cinematographer, uh, James Laxton, and their um, supervising sound editor, Annalie Blank, um, developed over the course of those 10 episodes. Um, And I think that that was really, really important in terms of recognizing both Jenkins's general style, but also watching as he and his team begin to layer meaning and motifs through both of those, both auditory and visual elements. And I feel like on a week to week, I would have picked up on it eventually. I just don't think I would have picked up on it as soon as I did, basically. Um, And admittedly, all of that takes a little bit of time to build out. Um, by episode three, things are there. But for me, watching it in like those little bursts that I did helped me really appreciate the meticulousness that went into staging and setting a lot of this stuff up. And I know I've kind of like already gone a little off track, but this was really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and... What I think is interesting is that we've got It's Okay Not not to Be Okay and the Underground Railroad back-to-back here for us, Mm -hmm. and they both had about 70-minute run times. And while, you know, Vince mentioned this in his comment, for him, he had no trouble with the pacing and the length of It's Okay Not to Be Okay. But that's something that we both had a little trouble with. I had no trouble with the pacing. There are act act breaks in these episodes, basically. (laughs) They're structured with act breaks. They're not like hard act breaks, but they're there. <laughs> I was able to binge this and it was pretty much okay. I mean, it's, it's obviously, it's very traumatic. There's a lot of, it's a very painful, difficult topic. Um, and there's a lot of suffering that you're experiencing from, you know, from these characters as well as, you know, just they're getting to, to know them and, and this world that's being built out. Um, but I was surprised that, you know, I can, I can binge a lot of TV. There's a, there's only been a few shows that I've struggled to do that with over the course of this podcast over the last, last nine and a half years. This was not one of them, though. Um, but, but I did not anticipate that being as rewarding an experience for you or for our listeners. So I'm glad to hear that. And I absolutely agree about the visual language and the auditory language. At certain points, um, I had the subtitles on, like the closed captioning. Cause, yeah, cause, I had them on the whole time. Yeah, And like... That will that'll ping you right to the insects as a theme, right? <laughs> because insects buzzing is like comes up as a cue immediately and a lot, right? And so that it draws your, you know, the, it drew my attention to it. But but yeah, not just that, but the use of portrait, the use of direct to camera, the lighting, the like the the design. It's a very um, it's a very deliberate show and. You normally, if I would say that about a show that has 70 to 75 minute episodes, you would think I mean the pacing and I don't mean the pacing. The pacing is not deliberate, but the, the intention of like the way it's put together and 
shot and framed and constructed feels very deliberate while also feeling very um, accessible. And uh, I think it's a really well-made show. So yeah, I'm glad. Yay, we both like it. I'm glad glad that we're on board. (laughs) No, no, no. We're very much on board. And have you seen any of Jenkins's other work? Have you watched Moonlight or Beale Street? Because I've only seen Beale Street. Yeah. Um, So that's all I've seen is Beale Street. Um, I haven't seen Moonlight at all. So, which is a major flaw of mine. These are these are movies, and you know that yeah. you know. Yeah, I know. When am I when am I going to go see a movie? I work when everybody else is is seeing movies. I'm like, want to go to a movie at 10 a.m. I can go to a 10 a.m. movie when we're not. I love 10 a.m. movies. You know Aren't who's they great? The, you know who's at 10 a.m. movies? No one. That's <laughs> no who's one. at 10 a.m. movies, especially if they're R-rated. There's no one in an R-rated 10 a.m. movie. It's great. <laughs> You should all do that when it's safe to go to movie theaters again. Yes. But back to Underground Railroad. Um, where should we start besides just saying we would like it a lot because it's very good? Um, I was really pleasantly surprised because I'm not familiar with the book. The book is by uh, Colson Whitehead. Um, yes. Uh, I did not. I think I had heard but then forgotten that there are elements of magical realism, like where they're like, no, 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 we're going to make the Underground Railroad literally be an Underground Railroad. Um, and when I realized that, I was like, wait, what? But then I was immediately on board. Um, the, the Like the choices in this, and I don't know, I'm assuming a lot of that is from the book, but, you know, who knows? I don't know, uh, are really compelling. And, and it's a, taking a topic that you think you have studied or learned about or know about from other media and telling it in a different way to keep you engaged, keep, you know, like to, to kind of point the audience at the things they want you to be paying more attention to, like the, um, uh, the, the testimonies and these other like elements that would absolutely not be historically accurate. They're not going to write down the name of everybody who they've helped, you know, to freedom that would get everybody killed. But in, in, in a magical realism show, you can do that and it makes complete sense. And it really helps emphasize the themes. What stood out to you? What were you surprised by like that? And as you watch this, was that a pro or a con for you? Oh no, it's definitely a pro for me. Um, I love magical realism. Um, especially when it's executed well and it's executed well here. I have not read Whitehead's book um, that this is inspired by is probably a better thing to say than based on, Um, just in part because Jenkins, who co-wrote almost the entire show as well as directed every episode, um, and his other team of writers changed large swatches of things, introduced characters that didn't exist. Like Grace does not Mm -hmm. exist in the book. Um, Cora's alone by herself in um, North Carolina for seven months in the book. Um, And I don't think that Ridgeway gets nearly the amount of development here he get in the show that he gets in the book, but there are a number of other changes that the show makes to the book. Um, And I don't know if those are, for better or worse, because I have not read this book. Um, what, but the core of it is that talking about the railroad itself here and this idea of using it as a magical realism conceit, I think it is very much part from the book. And one of the things I really like about it here, and from what I understand also in the novel, is that it never gets explained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ever. And there's an active disinterest, at least here for me, in the in the show in explaining it. Like literally, the only person who wants to understand it is Royal. That's it. Like core, the politics of the railroad and wanting to understand the railroad just get so increasingly textured as the show goes on that it's really difficult for me to want them to explain it any more than they do, because I very much like it as this force that exists, but is deeply flawed. It carries its own weird amount of trauma inflicted and the ways in which that, while it is a thing that can save you, it is also a thing that keeps hurting you. Right. Mm -hmm. Which just the weird balance of all of this, I think is really, really interesting. And the fact that, it's an escape, but the 
kind of feeling about it, which I really like, is that, is there really, though, any sort of actual escape? And the answer is no. Um, as the show, again, continues to layer in through other means as well. But I think it really gets driven home by the fact that just the last station that Korra comes to is abandoned and walled off and destroyed. Um, and then she comes out in the middle of nowhere, basically, mm. um, from that. And I just think that there's so many good things about how it gets deployed and thought about at the tail end of episode seven, um, which I don't really want to spoil, but mm. yeah, y'all did really hits hard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, so yeah, I think that I, for me, it really, really works. And I really like that. Well, and I absolutely fucking love that the Underground Railroad is not the point. The people right, absolutely on not. the Underground Railroad, the people taking the Underground Railroad are the point. And this is not going to become the story about the, like, that is a worthy story to be told that has been told many times but we are not telling the story of the good-hearted white people saving the slaves we are telling the story of cora she is she is what matters and we don't you know we will get other you know station agents you know we will get other you know bits and pieces here and there but we are not going to focus on the how and the why and the when and what inspired each of these people to take this risk and aren't they such a hero uh, because yes they are we're not going to ignore that but also they all kind of suck <laughs> yeah but they do all kind of suck in different ways and also that's not the point they yes. aren't the heroes um because that's just such an easy thing to slip into, uh, depending on who is telling your story and who is like who's writing it and what their perspective is, um, and that's some, definitely something that uh, was a issue for me in underground at times. Yeah. Um, so so I really appreciate that. Like, no, we're just gonna have it literally be a train. Yeah, and then it's gonna be like a push cart kind of thing for a while, and then yeah. We're just going to do that and just stay focused on not that that part of it, but just the, you know, each of the different states that they're in um, that Cora travels through. I knew very little about this going in. And so, therefore, I just assumed that Caesar was going to be in the whole thing. <laughs> sure, sure. And we won't, like, we'll avoid spoilers here because people might not have caught it. But he's not in the whole thing. Um, there are characters that you meet um, who you expect... Like, and again, in a different kind of show would absolutely be a major through line or they would pop up later in the narrative, right? So that we could have very literary points of, you know, of reference and like, uh, I'll get them to think about, get our, you know, Cora, who is our main character to think about how, how far she's come or how, you know, how she's changed over time, like that kind of a thing, like having her run into somebody again, um, that does not happen here. And I, which I really appreciate. Uh, how did the structure of like, I, we get an answer about her mom and I didn't think I needed it. Yeah. I didn't either, but it's fine, but it's fine. Uh, well, it's yeah, it's, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know what to do with that, that episode necessarily in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Anyway, go on. But, um, it was, it was really, um, you know, again, it was one of those things where as you're watching the show, you're it, getting a sense of how to watch it, you know, and, oh, it's this show. Oh, it's this. Mm. Um, did you have, I mean, we get, I think we could talk about the show for a long time. We've already been going for a while. Did you have a particular episode or character or performance besides obviously the terrific central performance from Thusa Badu? Uh, did you have any other, you know, how, how did, how, how, what stood out to you aside from everything? Cause it's so good guys. You should go watch it. Yeah. Um, like I do really want to hit home again, the visuals and the audio, audio things, the ways in which that they build train sounds into everything mm -hmm. from scrubbing a floor to the sound of a man limping on carpet. Um, to drive home this idea of escape and the ways in which that percolates throughout um, and then draw those connections together 
is both really on the nose, but also really subtle sometimes. And I love that. Um, and they do, they continue to do that like visually as well. Um, so there are two kind of things I do want to highlight real quick. Um, the first is I love the Tennessee duo, particularly Exodus. Um, I just love the look of Exodus, which is this episode takes place in Tennessee after um, the Cherokee have basically been forcibly dislocated um, from their land and been put upon the Trail of Tears. Um, So the woods are all burning their ash everywhere and all the stuff around them. Um, The thing I love about this episode and this I don't believe is in the book. Um, but I'm not entirely sure, is the ways in which that this brings the Native American experience into the background of the show that then, for me, continues to be really pivotal, particularly when we get to Indiana and the discourses that happen in Indiana, which are across episodes eight and nine. Um, And this idea of law and order, there's land out west for us if we want it. And it's like... Yeah, folks, about that and the ways in which... There's no one here, excuse me. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The ways in which that discourse has been internalized by this African community as well, that they themselves have been displaced, and just the ways in which that cycle continues is really interesting to watch Jenkins slow, very pointedly, I feel like, but also very obviously nudge everyone watching and go... See, this is what we're talking about. The systemic issues that kind of just become part of a society that we don't think about. And I find that really, really interesting. And I really liked the ways in which that got introduced into the show, particularly at that point of it being a point in which Cora herself is caught. Um, The other thing that I do want to highlight is I was real worried about episode four, Kate. (laughs) super worried about episode four i was like oh good a whole episode about ridgeway when he was a teen that's great i don't want to feel any empathy for this man and the show goes don't worry you're not going to (laughs) and it was such a fucking relief (laughs) yeah but i still didn't need it i didn't need it either but i do really like for I don't need it from a character perspective. I liked it from a thematic perspective of this introduction of this idea of the American imperative um, and how much of that then gets also baked into, again, some of the stuff in Indiana as well. Um, So I think that there's good stuff in there. Plus, it also introduces this really amorphous, squishy, great spirit stuff, which the show goes to great lengths not to define in any way, shape or form, but also lends itself to some really good visual stuff later on, like when Cora's looking at a fireplace. And I'm just like, oh, this is good. (laughs) Um, So those are the things that kind of stood out to me is... The Native American stuff that is very background, but also the show's adamancy that you don't feel any compassion or empathy for Ridgeway. Because guess what? He kind of sucked anyway, even when he was a teenager. And it just got worse. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're going to do that episode, that's a good way to do that episode. Um, I just and and it's also one of the shorter episodes. It is. Yes. It's like 40 minutes. Yeah, I, I will say uh, I was I really appreciated Jill Edgerton's performance as Ridgeway. This um, is the first time I've liked him in anything. <laughs> and uh, and it was one of those things where it was like I did not need anywhere near as much Ridgeway content as we got. Yes. But I think as you know, he plays a slave catcher. So as as a looming threat, uh, you know, it's important for him to be such a imposing figure on you know Cora and on the her experience and everything that's going on. So I get I mean I get it. Um but I but the performance and the use of the character did a lot to keep me on board with the like the time that we were getting with him. Um also you know there's there are several performances that uh that I, I really appreciated because they are I'm familiar with the actor but in such a different way. And then I mean the other touch point I have for Peter Mullen is his character on um, Top of the Lake. So, like, sure, sure, <laughs> quite a difference. <laughs> and then the other big one for me with that is Damon Harriman, of course, from Justified, 
Dewey Crow and Justified. Quite a different performance here as Martin. I love when shows remind me that he's a really good, that he's a very different kind of actor sometimes, because I just think about Dewey Crow. And then every show that I watch him in is just like, he's more than that, folks. He's not just like a character, like someone, a performer who can do a thing, who's really good at that thing and gets cast as it. He Uh is a really talented actor. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the... It does not escape me that the actors that popped up in this that I am familiar with are almost all white. And so those are the ones where I am familiar with some of their other work and therefore have a point of like to compare with. And this is so like I it does not escape my notice that I'm sitting here talking about, oh, it's so neat to see this different side of this performance and not meant like I don't know that I've seen this uh, Badu in other things. Uh, and clearly I need to, because she's really fucking good. Uh, obviously, William Jackson Harper, such royal, very, very different <laughs> than, yeah. than Chidi on <laughs> a good place. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's it's a really compelling show. And, you know, it would be very easy to just highlight the characters or the performances. But I like that we've spent so much time talking about the other, like, craft of the sh- uh, of the show and how it's put together the the design of the like you were saying the audio and the the writing and the cinematography and the lighting and the shot choices and the angles and and everything because that is i think maybe even you know with a couple exceptions of a couple of performers and Badu is one also Aaron Pierre as Caesar is another one for me where it's like watching keeping an eye out for that guy cuz he's really really good um the the what I think I will be struck by and take away from it more than anything else is the com- is the complete whole rather yeah. than an individual piece. Yeah, and I think that's super fair. And I think a, a number of some of this also has to do with the fact that while there are a couple of like really recognizable white TV actors and in Edgerton's case, a movie a film actor, most of the other actors are largely London based and also very theater based as well. Um, like I've seen Peter DeJersey who plays John Ballantyne pop up and stuff here and there. Um, he was in a Doctor Who episode. Um, I think I've seen him in a couple of other things. Um, but he's, he's really, really great. Um, as well. So there's, I think that a lot of that boiled down to like casting almost like casting choices that they very consciously made. Um, um, though, yeah, as I texted a friend of mine, I keep wondering why we cast Joel Edgerton in things. Um, and the answer is because Russell Crowe is too old. Well, um, also because he's very good in this. He is very good in this. I just don't like him in most of the stuff I've seen him in. Fair enough. Um, but he's very good in this. So, yeah, no, and I think that's, I think that the casting is a large part of that going like, oh, yeah, these are folks that are probably bouncing around a bunch of stuff and like one-off type appearances uh, or doing a lot of theater work. But then... Jenkins was and their his casting director went yeah all these great people from the London stage we're gonna bring them all to Georgia (laughs) (laughs) oh and you know one I have to make sure to mention Chase Dillon makes such an impression as Homer like that he does yeah he's real good good. (laughs) yeah Yeah. keep an eye out for that young man (laughs) yeah provided he continues to act keep an eye out for that young man if he chooses to yeah yeah he's yeah he's he's got chops already yeah um yeah, I don't have any much... I mean, I have plenty more to say. Like, the other... the My only closing note is that I'm actually really upset that we watched this this week because my partner was has been out of town and she had read the book, but, like, a while ago. Um, but also, like, I was constantly texting her about it. And by the end of the season, I was just, like, aggressively angry in a semi-fake way that we weren't watching it together because it would have been all we were talking about this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made me both really sad, but then it also made me really happy because it means I get to rewatch this again probably fairly soon, and I'm <laughs> game for that. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely feels like one that will just get um, deeper the more you like sit with it. And I, and another thing I'm really looking forward to doing is seeking out more pieces about it and more, uh, you know, like I know a friend of the show, Angelica Jade Bastien wrote, uh, like was really impacted by it uh, and wrote uh, a piece. It's a really good piece. I read it after I watched. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Over at Vulture. Yes. 
um, about this. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeking that out. Um, and just, uh, this is one that will live in my brain and, you know, we'll hopefully be getting all of the awards, all of the nominations. We'll see. Hopefully. Hopefully. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Uh, but go seek it out. If you have not made time for the underground railroad, it's on Amazon prime. There's 10 episodes and it's really good. So yeah. Hopefully listeners let us know what you thought if you watched it. Hopefully it's not just us. Um, a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post of this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com. We have our M4A chaptered feed and MP3 unchaptered feed up in Apple Podcasts. We also have the M4A feed over in Stitcher. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place. And, uh, of course, we're both on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse. And, Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much for a great discussion this week, Kate. Thank you, Noel. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. (laughs) 